Happy Sunday, West Village family. How's it going? Uh, Chris here. So happy to have you joining us. Uh, if you are new, joining us online for the first time, just want to extend a big welcome to you. Uh, we'd love to have you connect with us. You can just simply text your name to the number uh, on the screen below me, and one of our staff will uh, follow up with you. Uh, we've been going through a series on the book of Esther. So if you have your Bibles, grab them, open them up to the book of Esther. This is week number five. Head over to uh, Esther chapter four. And as you turn there, uh, I want to set this morning up uh, by asking a question. Uh, what do you do when pain, when hardship, uh, when struggle, when strife comes your way? How do you handle it? Uh, where do you go? How do you respond? What thoughts enter into your mind when pain, hardship, struggle, and strife come into your way? Uh, one of the things that has been said of our Western culture is that we are one of the least equipped cultures of all time in knowing how to properly deal with pain and hardship and suffering. Uh, that the worldview that we have constructed here in the West really doesn't have a category or a box to put this idea of hardship into. And the reason for that is because uh, the highest ideal for us as a culture is what philosophers would say uh, is self-actualization. Uh, that for us, the, the ideal life, the perfect life, the good life, is one where we are self-fulfilled, self-satisfied, and, and again, what philosophers would call self-actualized. Uh, where we are totally being true to ourselves and experiencing the fullness of what we think it means to be us. And so as a result, the, the reality of pain and suffering and hardship really doesn't have a place in that worldview. Uh, it's seen as the enemy of the good life. Uh, there's, there's no purpose for it. There's no uh, way that we can actually use it or that it can be uh, put into our lives and, and help us grow or help us, uh, you know, grow as a person or, or experience the fullness of life. And so what we do is we tend to avoid it. Uh, we, we tend to try and, uh, you know, stay away from anything that would cause us harm or hurt or pain or suffering. Uh, and one of the ways that the Christian worldview, the, the worldview that the Bible espouses and teaches, uh, the, the way that the Christian worldview separates itself from every other religion, ideology, philosophy, specifically though when it comes to this area of, of pain and suffering, where it separates itself uh, from the, the Western idea of how to live a full life is that Christianity comes in and it actually says that pain and suffering and hardship aren't bad things. Now, I want to be clear here. It doesn't say to us that we should pursue these things. It doesn't say to us that we should go after pain and suffering and hardship. It, it's not this idea of self-flagellation or, or self, you know, sadistic uh, in terms of its pursuit of pain and, and struggle and hardship. But what it doesn't say is that they're bad. What Christianity teaches is that pain and hardship are actually things that God uses in our lives to refine us. Uh, when you look at the, the Christian story, what you see at the center of the Christian story is the life of Jesus. And at the center of the life of Jesus is his death on the cross. Death uh, on the cross where he pays for our sins, but where he experiences pain and hardship. And then Jesus invites us to be his followers. And the way that he invites us to do that is by denying ourselves. It's the opposite of what we are, uh, you know, conditioned to believe here in the West. We are called to deny ourselves, not actualize ourselves, but deny ourselves and to take up our cross and to follow Jesus. 
And what we see time and time again threaded through the story of God is that not that God uh, causes pain, not that God is the author of evil or hardship or struggle or strife, but that he uses it as a means by which he refines us. There's a quote by uh, C.S. Lewis, famous quote, where he writes in, in the book called The Problem of Pain, he says, we can ignore pleasure, but pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pains. Uh, it is his megaphone, his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Uh, what Lewis is getting at is that God does some of his best work in us through pain, through hardship, through struggle. Why? Because it has our attention. As we come to Esther chapter 4, Esther chapter 4 is really, it's the hinge point of the whole book. And what we're going to see here is that Esther and her cousin Mordecai have hard experiences and that these hard experiences are actually used providentially by God to refine them. So Esther chapter 4, let's jump in. Here we go. Chapter 4 verse 1, here's what it says. When Mordecai learned of all that, uh, all that had been done. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, what is the author doing here? Just kind of setting us up. He's kind of setting up the story. For those of you who haven't been with us, here's what's been happening. We have Esther and Mordecai, who are these uh, two people who are struggling to figure out what it means to follow God in the midst of a culture that doesn't know and love and serve him. And, and Esther has gotten married to King Xerxes, who's king of the Persian Empire. Mordecai has started working in the palace and uh, there's a man named Haman who comes on the scene and Haman and Mordecai functionally become arch enemies. Uh, Haman gets elevated to a place of status. Mordecai refuses to bow down to him. Haman then goes to Xerxes and says, I think we need to get rid of uh, not just Mordecai, but all the Jewish people, the 15 million Jewish people in the Persian empire, the people that Esther and Mordecai uh, are a part of, that those are their people. And so we have this conflict that has arisen in Esther chapter 3 where, where, where Esther and Mordecai's people are on the brink of destruction. So when Mordecai had learned all that had been done, when he had learned that, that Xerxes and Haman had issued this edict to kill all the Jews, uh, here's what he does. He tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he only went as far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter in. In every province to which the edict and the order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So what's happening here? There's, there's actually something very significant happening here in these first set of verses in Esther chapter 4. Uh, here is what we see. For the very first time, I want you to see this with me, Mordecai actually identifies with the people of God. Uh, up to this point, what we've seen in Esther and Mordecai, specifically here Mordecai, is that he has been a person who has had both feet firmly planted in two worlds. In the empire of Persia, functionally the world, people that don't know, love, believe, and serve the God of the Bible. And then in uh, the, uh, the, the Jewish people, the people who do love, know, and serve the God of the Bible. And he's been conflicted. He's loved the comfort of the empire, and he's been unwilling to make his heritage, his allegiance to the God of the Bible actually known for fear that it would, it would undermine his ability to grow in the empire. To go back to the analogy that I used earlier, to be self-actualized, to be self-fulfilled. And so he struggled with that. He struggled with what it meant to follow the God of the Bible in the Persian empire. 
And then in Esther chapter 3, this hardship comes where the entire nation of Israel, all the Jewish people in the Persian Empire, come under this edict by King Xerxes, whereby they're all going to be wiped out. And Mordecai has this conflict, this, this pain, this hardship, this, this struggle that comes his way. And what does indeed it do in his life? It causes him to have a spiritual renewal. It causes him to come to this place where for the very first time he's willing to be marked by the people of God, to be known as one of the people of God. Now, I don't want you to miss this because I think it's very significant for us, but it was hardship. It was pain. It was suffering that actually caused Mordecai to come to the end of himself. It caused him to move from this place of being a casual Christian, a casual follower of Jesus, a casual follower of the God of the Bible, to here actually putting himself among them, to actually placing his mark as one of the people of God. In a sense, what we're seeing here, and it's not explicit, but I think it's implicit, is that there's a spiritual renewal that is taking place within the heart of Mordecai. That the pain and the hardship, it's actually producing within Mordecai something significant, whereby he's actually coming back to the place that he knows, he knows he is supposed to be following the God of the Bible, following Jesus. But it doesn't end there. It keeps going. Look at verse 4. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. So Esther's in the palace. Mordecai's at the temple gate. He's wailing. He's weeping. He's grieving. Esther hears about it. She's in great distress. She sent clothes for him uh, to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Uh, the reason for this was because Esther wanted Mordecai to come into the palace. And in Xerxes' palace, the rules were you couldn't come in if you were mourning. He only wanted to hear good news. He didn't want to hear bad news. And so she's like, here, put on these clothes, come and see me. And Mordecai's like, no, I don't want any of that. Verse 5, then Esther summoned uh, Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend to her and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Mordecai's like, I'm not coming to you. So she sends one of her servants to Mordecai to hear what's going on. Look at what happens next, picking up in verse 6. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay him into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He was also given a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence and to beg for mercy and to plead with him for her people. Uh, so what is happening here? Esther sends one of her servants to Mordecai. And what does Mordecai do? He pleads. He's functionally pleading with Esther through her servant for her to do something. You've got to do something. You've got to do something to save us. You've got to do something to save God's people. And you kind of see this progression within the life of Mordecai. 
At the beginning of the story, he starts off as one who is rebellious. He starts off as one who is hard-hearted, who doesn't pray, who doesn't repent of sin, who hides his faith, who functionally pimps out his adopted niece, uh, Esther, to King Xerxes. And then at the beginning of chapter 4, we see him wailing, moaning, weeping, grieving, identifying with the people of God. And then here, as we move into chapter 4, verse 6, 7, and 8, we actually see him pleading for all of the people. So I want you to see something here that is so important. That it's, it's Esther chapter 3, where Mordecai encounters hardship that produces what we see here in Esther chapter 4. At the end of Esther chapter 3, it looked like Mordecai was done. He had come to the end of himself. It looked like functionally like he was going to have to call his therapist and it was, he, was, he was undone. He was unglued. He, he was going to completely, his story was coming to a complete end. Everything that he had been living for up to this point was going to be taken from him. Everything. The life that he had built in the empire was going to be gone. And then what happens in Esther chapter 4 is that Mordecai comes to this place where he allows the hardship of the edict in chapter 3 to be a defining moment for him. Uh, Right now in our culture, we're living in what I would describe as an Esther 3 moment. It's a a defining moment. There's, There's some cataclysmic things that are taking place. There's there's lives that are being lost because of a global pandemic. There's all kinds of economic hardship uh, because of a functional global lockdown. Uh, There's all the ripple effect. I mean, I've been reading articles this week about uh, hunger that is going to be sweeping over much of Africa as a result of this economic uh, hardship that we're going through. Uh, There's the social implications. There's the brokenness in our homes. There's the strife in our families. Uh, There's just like the, uh, the, the, the stuff that, you know, we would call first world problems, but there's still problems where we're trying to figure out how to homeschool our kids and how to entertain our toddlers when we're on functional lockdown. Uh, We just celebrated Mother's Day. And for many of us, we couldn't even see our moms on Mother's Day because of all this. It's, it's, it's a big moment. In all of our lives, as long as we are going to be alive, this is going to be a moment that has marked human history. This is an Esther 3 moment. And the question we have to ask is, how are we going to let it impact us? How is this moment going to define us? What are we going to do with it? You see, one of the questions that I think many people are asking, and and I think it's a a good question, but it's how will we survive? How will we survive what is happening right now? And I understand this question. It's not a bad question. It's a good question. When when all this first happened, this was exactly what I thought. First thing I did was I went uh, online, checked our bank balance, you know, kind of just quickly did a check on how much food we had in the fridge. Are we going to be okay? How will we survive? It's a good question. But the problem is for a lot of people, this is where the questions stop. For a lot of people, that's all that is being asked. How will I survive? I think there's a better question. I think there's a deeper question to ask in this moment. What about this question? Have you asked this question in this moment? What does God want to do in me 
And what does God want to do through me? With all that I'm facing, with all that is coming my way, with all the hardship, with all the uncertainty, with all the struggle, with all the strife, with all the pain, am I just trying to survive? Or am I actually willing to stop, to take a breath, and to ask the question, God, what is it that you're trying to do in me? When, again, when this all happened, I had those initial moments where I checked the bank balance, made sure our family was going to survive. And then, of course, my next thought was, how's the church going to survive? How are, how are we going to survive? So I started rewriting job descriptions of all our staff. We started planning. We started risk management. I'm reading. I'm listening to people. I'm talking to other leaders, trying to figure out how to, you know, how to get through this season and navigate these waters. And I had this moment probably about a week and a half ago where the Spirit of God just, just stopped me. I was actually in my basement. I was working out. It was kind of part of my morning routine. And the Spirit of God stopped me and he said, Chris, you have yet to ask what I want to do in you in this moment. Super convicting. And so often when pain, when hardship, when struggle, when strife comes our way, when we have these Esther three kind of moments, we, we don't have Mordecai experiences. In fact, we, we just try and survive. We tend to try and go around them maybe. We, we tend to dismiss them. Uh, you know, oftentimes what I try and do is just put my head down, right? White knuckle it, pull myself up by my bootstraps and get through whatever is in front of me. I can, I can work my way through it. I can will my way through it. That's an option. It's an option. But I wonder if by doing that, if we're actually missing out on the refining work that God wants to do in our lives and in our hearts as a result of the, the pain and the, the struggle and the obstacles that are in front of us. You see, something happens when we're faced with hardship, when we're faced with these hard moments, just like Mordecai was in Esther chapter 3. He, he came to the end of himself. Uh, I mean, I don't know. We don't know what his pray prayers were like. In fact, we don't hear any prayers of Mordecai or Esther in the book of Esther. But my guess is at night when he lied in bed, he wondered, God, where are you and what are you doing? He did some deep soul searching. He did some deep heart work. And it was in the midst of that heart work where he had what I, what I would describe here as a come to Jesus kind of moment. What does God want to do? What does the Spirit want to do? How does He want to renew you in this season where we are experiencing something that is difficult? And maybe for you, COVID is not the difficult thing. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's the result of COVID. Maybe it's just something going on in your personal life. And here's my encouragement to us, family. Don't miss out on the great work that God wants to do by not being present and attentive to the work of the Spirit as you walk through this. So instead of asking, how am I going to survive? It might be better to ask, God, what is it that you want to do in me? What is it that you want to do through me as a result of this? Story goes on, Esther chapter 4, picking up in verse 9. Hathak, that's Esther's servant, went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and all the people of the royal provinces, uh, that for any, uh, sorry, she instructed 
more she instructed him to say to Mordecai verse 11 all the king's officials and all the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner courts without being summoned the king has but one law that they be put to death unless the king extends the golden scepter to them and spares their lives but 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king so so what's Esther saying here, Mordecai says through uh, Esther's servant, go and plead. Esther's functionally saying no here. Uh, she's saying, I'm not sure this is a great idea. You see, you got to understand how the king works, Mordecai. If I just go into his presence, he has the right to take my life. I mean, they might have some marriage counseling to figure out here, right? So, so the way that King Xerxes worked was if you went into his presence, here's what you would see. He'd be seated on the throne and around him would be his militia and he would have a golden scepter and if you came into his presence unannounced here's what he would do he would hold the scepter up in the air and if he extended it to you towards your head because you would have to you know be bowing or laying prostrate before him if he extended it to you your life was spared if he held it up in the air you were beheaded so even for his own wife Queen Esther to go into his presence. And as you can see here, she hadn't even been summoned by the king for the last 30 days. This was going to be a problem. And so what Esther's saying here is, I'm not sure I want to do that. And then look at what happens in verse 12. Uh, When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. So Esther reports back to Mordecai and here's Mordecai's response back to Esther. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. So here's what Mordecai is saying back to Esther. He's saying, don't think that just because you're the king's wife, that if this edict goes out, they're not going to find out that you're not one of us. You're not one of God's people. You're not part of the, the people of God, the Jewish nation commentators said this is actually a thinly veiled or not so thinly veiled rather threat that Mordecai is making to Esther in other words what Mordecai is saying is listen if you don't do something about this I'm going to actually rat you out and you're going to die too so he Mordecai's not the greatest guy all the time yes he's identifying with the people of God here but there's still this real sense in which these are broken people sinful people who are trying to figure out what it means to follow the God of the Bible then it says this in verse 14 for if you remain silent at this time Relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another per, another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Here's what Mordecai is saying. Is it possible, Esther, is it possible that God in his providence, is it possible that God in his grace, that God in his mercy, he is actually positioned you in the place that you are in right now for such a time as this? When people think of the book of Esther, this is the verse they think of. In fact, this is what we named the series after, for such a time as this. In other words, what Mordecai is saying to Esther is that, is it possible that, yes, this has been a book that has just been filled with mistakes, with sin, with brokenness, with with unfortunate circumstances, with rebellious, hard-hearted people, people that don't know God and people that do know God, none of whom are trying to follow God, honor God, or serve God. And yet, despite all of the brokenness, God, in his kindness and in his mercy, 
is working and moving and weaving in and through even the brokenness, even the sin, even the rebellion of Esther, of Mordecai, of Haman and Xerxes to bring about this moment for, for Esther to do something that God could use to bring about the redemption of his people. And what we get a picture of right here is what we call the providence of God. That the way that the providence of God actually works is that that God in his grace even uses our sin. He uses our rebellion. He uses our brokenness. He uses our mistakes. He comes in and he redeems them and uses them for his goodness, for his grace, and for his glory. That there is nothing that happens that God cannot in some way, shape, or form redeem. I don't know what you're, where you're at this, as, you, as you're listening to this, but for me, that's deeply encouraging. There are, there are so many times in my life where I feel like I have not done the right thing, where I've made a mistake, where I've, where I've either knowingly made a mistake or, or, or ignorantly made a mistake, where I've not loved my family well, where I have not loved Jesus well, where I've not served people well. And yet somehow in God's providence, in his economy, he has the ability to come in and restore and redeem the broken things. I mean, just think about your life with me for a second. Think about all the things that you have regret over. Think about all the things that you carry shame and guilt and remorse over. Beautiful, beautiful truth in the story of Mordecai and Esther is that your story is not done. Is that God in his grace and kindness and his mercy, he, he, actually, he actually uses these things in our lives for his grace and for his mercy. If we go back to the very beginning of the story of God in the book of Genesis, God creates the cosmos, he creates the heavens and the earth, he creates Adam and Eve, he declares everything very good. Adam and Eve choose rebellion. Uh, they choose to walk away from God, just like Esther and Mordecai. They choose not to follow him. They choose not to obey him. They choose not to love him. They choose not to serve him. And in that moment, there's this beautiful picture we get of the grace of God where he doesn't look at Adam and Eve and just wash his hands of them and just say, forget this, I'm starting over. There's only two of them. It would be easy just to wipe them out and try again. But we get this picture of God who comes to them. It actually says in Genesis chapter 3 that he comes and he's looking for them in the garden. And he calls out to them, calls out to Adam, Adam, where are you? Adam, where are you? And he whispers their names and they come towards him and he doesn't, he doesn't merely condemn them. Does he hold them accountable? Absolutely. He is a God of justice, but he doesn't just leave them in this place of brokenness, of guilt and of shame. We get this picture whereby he slays an animal and he uses the skin of the animal to cover their nakedness, to cover their guilt and to cover their shame. And it's a beautiful picture of the grace of God. It's, it's very similar to what we see here in the story of Esther. We, I've said this many times, but with Esther and Mordecai, we see people who have not prayed any prayers, who have not repented of any sins, who have done things knowing that they were not things that the God of the Bible wanted them to do. And yet somehow God in his loving kindness and providence chooses to use Esther and Mordecai. 
And here in the story of Esther, we get this beautiful picture of a God who is both sovereign and good. Sovereign meaning that he is in full control. And good meaning that God always works out even the broken things in our life for his ultimate good glory and pleasure and our joy. If God were only sovereign but not good, then he would be like King Xerxes who uses his power to glorify only himself. If God were only good but he was not sovereign, then he would not have the ability to overcome evil, to overcome Satan, to overcome sin and death and hell. But God is both. He is sovereign and he is good. And what we see here is that people make decisions. They make good ones. They make bad ones. They make sinful ones. They make mistakes. But no matter how hard it seems like Esther and Mordecai try to screw things up, God never gives up on them. He continues to persist after them. He continues to pursue them. He continues to use them despite their folly and sin. And functionally, what Mordecai is saying here to Esther is, Esther, God is in control. Uh, There have been a whole bunch of decisions that have been made, but God is still in control. And maybe, just maybe, somehow he could use you and he could use me to be a part of his plan to save his people. And friends, the question that I want to ask us is this, could it be that the moment we find ourselves in right now is a moment like this? Uh, the moment that we find ourselves in, I don't know how often you read the news, how often you go on social media. I mean, I don't recommend it. It's not good for the heart. It's not good for the mind. But it's bleak. It looks bleak out there. Uh, the current moment we find ourselves in, it seems as godless as the story of Esther does. It, you know, we, we have moments where people are making mistakes, where, where evil seems like it's winning. It feels like God is not seated on the throne, that he's actually taking a nap. It seems like he's losing. But he's not. Because although it feels like God might be absent, we know he's not. We know he's doing something behind the scenes and that through his invisible hand of providence he's actually at work and the question for us to ask ourselves as we're listening as we're leaning into the story of esther and mordecai is what does god want to do what does he want to do in us what does he want to do in you what does he want to do through you? See, the whole world right now is asking, how am I going to survive? How am I going to endure? How am I going to get through this? And the story of Esther comes at us and says, that's the wrong question. There's a deeper question. There's a better question, which is how does God want to use you to bring about the redemption of his people in this moment? Some of us, we look at the moment that we're in and we're not actually in pursuit of God. We're not actually in pursuit of his work. For us, this feels more like an extended vacation, right? We're catching up on a backlog of Netflix shows that we have yet to watch. We're, you know, enjoying some downtime with the family. Those are good things. I'm doing those things as well, believe me. 
but we're not asking some of the bigger questions. What does it mean to be the people of God in this moment? What does it mean to love and serve my neighbors in this moment? Well, what does it mean to put on display the, the glory of Jesus in this moment? Who around me can I serve? I mean, I've heard people say, I'm not going to serve my neighbors. I don't like my neighbors. If you're a follower of Jesus and that's your heart's disposition, I feel like, I feel like that's hard-hearted. I feel like this is a moment for the people of God to lean in and ask the question, Spirit of God, how do you want to use me? What do you want to do in me? What do you want to do through me? And so the questions that we should be asking as the church in this moment is who are we praying for? Who are we loving? Who are we serving? How can we share the gospel with people? How can we love people well? How can we serve? How can we put on display the glory of the grace of God? Because this moment we find ourselves in is a moment that is uniquely positioned for people to hear and know and experience the love of Jesus. People are right now are searching. They're hungry. This is a crazy moment where, where people's hopes are being dashed, where all the gods that our culture has functionally worshipped are being taken from us. And we now have an opportunity to step into that moment and present to them a better way. Most people, as we've already said, have been living for, for self-fulfillment and self-actualization. And, and this moment has completely undone that. And for the Christian, this is an opportunity to come in and say, there's a better, there's a better foundation to build your life on. That is the foundation of Jesus. That, that, that God could actually use this moment in people's lives to position their hearts to be ready for you to share with them the hope that Jesus offers. And they might respond. That they might actually respond. So instead of asking, how will we survive? We should be asking, what does God want to do through us? Story goes on, Esther chapter 4, picking up in verse 15, and we see finally Esther has a response. So she's confronted by Mordecai. How is she going to respond? What is she going to do? Here's what we see, verse 15. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go and gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against his law. And if I perish, I perish. Verse 17, so Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. What happens? Esther has the same experience that Mordecai has. The, the, the pressure, the, the difficulty, the hardship of the moment produces something in Esther whereby she has a spiritual renewal. This is the closest thing we have in the book of Esther to a spiritual moment. I mean, look at what she says. She says to Mordecai, she says, okay, I'm going to do it. Here's what I want you to do, though. Go and gather God's people. Go and gather all of God's people, just like the church, right? Wouldn't it be great for the church to gather together? But this is what she says. Gather the people of God together. Get them together so that they can pray and so that they can fast. Praying and fasting, whenever that is referenced in the Old Testament, it was always an act that was done to set the people apart, to prepare them for something unique that God was going to do. And then look at what she says at the very end. The end of verse 16. She says, and if I perish, I perish. See, for Esther, this was a moment for her. If you go back to Esther chapter 2, when we are introduced to Esther, 
We're told that she has two names. She has a Persian name and she has a Jewish name. And the question that was asked was, which one is she? And up to that point, she was unsure. Her feet were, just like Mordecai, firmly planted in two worlds. But in this moment, right here, she decided. This is what I would call her come to Jesus moment. This is her moment where she had to ask some very hard questions of what she believed and about who she followed. This decision that Esther makes right here, in my opinion, is the most important decision that a person can make. Who am I going to give my life to? I mean, look at how she words her decision. If I perish, I perish. She's willing to actually risk her own life to be obedient to God. This, this harkens forward to Jesus' invitation to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Give up all of yourself. And see, there's, there's this moment that is created whereby a crisis forces a response for Esther. Uh, for some of us, the moment we're in right now, it's created a crisis. You've been building a life. You've been building a life on a presupposition that if you can achieve whatever it is your hopes and dreams have put in front of you, that you will be ultimately happy. And COVID, the economic crisis and all that's come with it has exposed it. And your world has come crashing down. Your feet are firmly planted in the air. That's what happens to Esther here. And she has to decide, who am I going to give my life to? For some of you right now, this is a moment where you have to decide, who am I going to give my life to? Everything I've been building, everything I've been giving my life to up to this point, it has not delivered on the hype and the hope. And this moment has created a crisis whereby we recognize the things that our souls have been tethered to, they can't actually sustain us. And what Esther says is, I'm going to give my life to Jesus. If I perish, I perish. See, what she's saying here is this, if your greatest treasure is your life, then hardship suffering, pain, it will never be your friend. It will always be your enemy. But if we can somehow, like Esther and Mordecai, allow it to be so, God will actually use the brokenness and the pain and the hardship of this moment to change and transform us and make us into something. See, friends, what we need to do so we need to come to Jesus. We need to come to Jesus. Uh, we don't need to come to church. We don't need to come to empty religion. We don't need to come to empty religious obedience, but we need to come to this place, just like Esther and Mordecai came to this place where they were at the end of themselves. They had nowhere else to go, and they landed on Jesus. We need to come to this place where we realize that everything that we've held on to, it's like a mist. And we need to give ourselves 
to Jesus. Here's where I'm going to close. It's easy to read this story. If you were to just read this story without really giving it a whole lot of thought, you would come out on the other side and you would say, wow, Esther is the hero of this story. Uh, But as we've talked about many times, as we've been going through the book of Esther, Esther and Mordecai are not people to be held up as and esteemed as great examples. They have not been up to this point living a life that uh, demonstrates that they're actually followers of the God of the Bible. Uh, But what we do know is, is when we look at the Bible that it's not just one story, but it's many stories that are woven together telling one giant story. And the characters in the stories are not the heroes, but they are pointing to one who is the greater hero. And that's Jesus. That while it looks like on the surface, Esther might be the hero of this story, that Jesus, in a very real way, he's the better Esther. Uh, that here we get a picture of Esther whereby, uh, you know, it requires her to be uh, functionally threatened in order to identify with God's people. Uh, that up to this point, she She's hidden her belief in God. She has not been willing to allow herself to be numbered amongst the people of God. And she's, in a sense, a reluctant servant of Jesus. But when we look at the life and ministry of Jesus, he's anything but that. He's not reluctant. He comes all the way from heaven to earth, knowing that he's going to have to give his life up for us. He, he's willing to be identified with us. He's willing to humble himself and to become uh, one of us. He's willing, as the Apostle Paul says, to, to humble himself and become obedient, obedient to the cross. Where he gives his life up for us. And unlike Esther, who is reluctant, Jesus says, no one takes my life from me, but I willingly lay it down of my own accord. Friends, Jesus is the better Esther. Jesus is the better Savior. Jesus is the one who we are to run to. Jesus is the one who can save us. And Jesus, in this moment, is the one who wants to change us, transform us, and sustain us. Uh, Let me pray for us. Uh, Jesus, we thank you for your goodness and grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that you love us so much that you... That you, you gave yourself up for us. Your heart's desires that we would know and love and serve and follow you. And so, Lord, I pray right now that as many of us are experiencing hardship, as many of, as many of us are experiencing pain, as many of us are experiencing difficulty and trial, that we wouldn't run from it. But we would ask in this moment, God, what do you want to do? How do you want to change us? How do you want to work in us? How do you want to renew us? How do you want to refine us? And that through this, our hearts would grow, our love for you would grow, our desire for you would grow. You would change us just as Esther and Mordecai are being changed and transformed as we watch this story. We'd be changed and transformed And ultimately, you would use us to bring about your plan, your glory, your purposes in our city and in our world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.